Hello everybody and welcome back to Blockchain Won't Save the World on Tour. Today we're doing a playback of the 10 most interesting things we learned about blockchain technology from season 2 of this show. Awkwardly titled, Another 10 More Things I've Learned About Blockchain. In this season we've been to Canada, Brazil, the Netherlands, Germany, Malta, Israel, India, the UAE, Japan, Singapore and Australia as well as launching the popular Students React show that hands the mic to the up-and-coming student technology leaders of the future to share their thoughts on blockchain technology. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this season as much as I've enjoyed researching, recording and producing it. Blockchain remains a fascinating and nascent technology with huge potential to transform our world. And the more we can learn from each other, the better chance we have of letting the humans of the world do amazing things with the technology for the benefit of us all. Because if there's one thing you should have learned by now, is that blockchain won't save the world. We will. So here's my 10 learnings from season two of the show, starting with a particularly surprising insight from Efri Pilarinu on the Switzerland episode. We learned that the first ever digital currency was actually created in 1934. In 2016, already there were about 500 companies in the crypto valley, if you want. And I think it's important to reflect as to why this happened, because like with everything, you need a, a whole ecosystem and different factors to grow a hub like we have now here in Switzerland. There's two or three very important elements that led to this. One is the long-time tradition in data trust and privacy in Switzerland from other sectors. The second aspect is that this is a country that has legally, constitutionally recognized digital currencies long before Bitcoin or anything like that. Allow me to share with you an aspect that maybe is not appreciated so much uh, outside of Switzerland. And, and like the Swiss are not very good at blowing their horn. For me, this is a very important story. And it is the story of the launch of Veer Bank and the Veer stablecoin, if you want. So we are back in the 1930s in a recessionary environment. And in Switzerland, we have a community currency that is launched called the VIR, the W-I-R. And this is an abbreviation of the word Wirtschaftsspring, which means economic circle. This is basically electronic money. It's created by the VIR bank. They actually set up a bank at that time. They got a license for that bank. And the purpose was to issue this community currency to help small businesses and lend them money. This was pegged one-to-one -to, -one to the Swiss franc. And its mission was to support trading activities of the members of the bank. This is 1934. 
and there are 16 members businesses of the bank. And over time, it grew to 60,000 issuing this Veer community currency, a pure digital currency that was fully recognized and legal by the Swiss regulation and constitution. Next, to Germany, where we learned that some countries are just inherently more decentralized than others. In this clip, we hear from Katharina Guerra. So I think we have a representation of the underlying stronger industries. So in Frankfurt, we have a stronger digital asset financial space, but particularly in Stuttgart and in Munich, we have a more industrialized focused space also with the big automotive companies being here. Berlin really doesn't have any strong industrial footprint whatsoever besides, you know, startups and tech itself. So they really had the freedom to operate in that area to discuss and explore and be crazy uh, because there wasn't a legacy to fight. In Hamburg, we also have a quite interesting scene. By definition, they've always been more logistics, supply chain and transportation minded, but also quite strong on investing. So I think those are the, the broadly speaking different categories. However, having said that, then you will find at first glance maybe awkward, but then striking small little places that embarked on the journey. I mean, uh, Mitweida in Saxony is a small community and a small city and their local bank and their local university and you know their local industry really embarked on the blockchain and cryptocurrency journey and we have Bayreuth and then we have you know all the different technical universities then we have this project called Baden-Württemberg blockchain and then we have a communal blockchain in North Rhine-Westphalia so given that Germany different than France has always been strong decentralized post-World War II really this decentralized blockchain nature is something that is very appealing also to small rural places. So I think one of the intriguing things is there's so many kind of, you know, hidden champions, local inventors, that it's really worth the while to look, you know, left and right. And you'd find, you know, some amazing, but very convinced and very innovative structures, even in places you certainly wouldn't expect. Creating a thriving blockchain ecosystem requires collaboration across government, enterprises, and startups. And there are a few better examples of this than the Dutch Blockchain Coalition. Malus Pomp tells us more. It was, of course, helpful that the Dutch government was already actively involved in their own pilot program. But at the start of the Dutch Blockchain Coalition, it was an initiative of the Dutch government. But it's more a membership model with where all government agencies are part of this coalition, but also the knowledge institutes, hubs in the region, startup scale-ups. It's a combined agenda. And it's not that the government decides uh, we are going to run these use cases. It's really a collaboration of all these organizations. And that's quite unique. Sometimes you see that a government has a strategy paper or a certain vision. And that the, the market is also has their own ecosystem. 
but really this public-private agenda and approach and investments, it's also a, a common investment, is uh, really unique and makes that the government is also involved in all the use cases we run. And that's also unique, I think. And also the investments made in these use cases are coming from both public and private organizations. Yeah, and, uh, and something else, because we are such a small country, the blockchain world is also relatively small. So within the Dutch Blockchain Coalition, yeah, we, we know all the players in the, in the Netherlands. So that's also helpful. And Dutch people in general are really internationally oriented. So that's also why I think we relatively quickly have set up partnerships with other blockchain communities. For example, we have a collaboration now for three years with the blockchain community and the government in Singapore. We have a lot of collaborations within the EU. So that's also, I think, unique of the Dutch blockchain coalition that we partnered so quickly with other communities worldwide. And so we also have a lot of use cases where we work together with other communities. Next, to India where we hear from Richard Joshi about how blockchain and the open source movement are empowering women in developing nations and lowering barriers to economic participation. In terms of female founders and inclusion in India and in the blockchain space also in general, I do feel that we are still not a lot in majority, we are still uh, less in number. But working in the Ethereum space, which is and also in open source software, right? I feel that in this space, women have a strong voice, whether they are participating in technology, I'm more focused on the growth and marketing aspects. It's through our work that people respect and they see what value that we bring to the ecosystem. Blockchain and open source in particular is a place where you see people from across the globe, uh, different colors, different nationalities, just joining. And all they love is the fact that we are building something which is decentralized, which is away from, you know, centralized control. And that's basically what I think the passion for each and everybody is. Furthermore, blockchain technology is underpinning platforms that solve problems for the last mile and empowering those near the bottom of the economic pyramid. We hear more from Izaki Eberhardt. I saw the blockchain technology a couple of years ago as a potential a way to solve that problem. So basically, I personally see and start to engage with the blockchain technology uh, as a way to, to, to bring new services for this, for this amazing community of farmers, which are, uh, in the Brazilian case, only 15% have financial services today. For me, it's more or less like a way to have trust into the financial services in the agribusiness community. Agri is a, a risk intelligence provider in the agribusiness finance where we deliver to financial institutions, agri-corporations or trading companies the ability of analyze, monitor and engage with farmers over their locations. So basically analyzing what's going on in each crop field and raising to the institutions credit score, risk assessment, history of the place, and so on and so forth. So basically, they can have a way to monitor their portfolios, to engage in a better way, to look to the farmer's development with trust proofs, and the blockchain come along as a way to validate everything, to have data and results, trust proofs. 
agro serves as a, a way for more farmers get access to financial services and companies have a better way to interact with farmers and with other peers too. So a bank can have trust from an insurance company because they are using data to decide. So the insurance company don't need to go around of all audit process and so on. So it's basically bringing financial institutions in the agriculture space to a, a next level of trust and capabilities to work. The blockchain technology today, it's proven itself enough to be critical, for example, for agri to deliver uh, results about, for example, analysis of a crop field for a farmer, but deliver that results, for example, credit score, risk assessment, projections, but deliver that attached to the trust proofs, which means companies don't need to trust agri, they don't need to trust bank or institution. This solve the problem of mistrust between peers. This solve the problem of no financial history for farmers and improve the capabilities of companies and, and financial institutions to evaluate those farmers. Because imagine year after year and after year, you can have the records. It's the only, only way we can really solve the, the absence of finance today, which 500 million families around the globe which depend on agriculture and have no access to financial services, we will have a chance. Since we started the, the, the development of agri, we have been trying to do uh, this uh, trust-proof infrastructure uh, for financial services in the agribusiness in different ways. We've come from public blockchain, try strict private ones, and then we come to another set of decisions with some trade-offs in the time, the duration of the process, cost, speed, and so on and so forth. One of the key takeaways from this process is we will need to have multiple types of blockchains in different applications. It's clear now, in the beginning, I was too much passionate about some flavors of blockchain, let's say. Today, it's much more clear we have, for example, to use more data-specific infrastructures, which you can do cheaper and faster transactions, not too much worrying about other aspects. But we'll take some time until you have a, a network of networks, which each network will be a different blockchain for a different purpose. This will change a lot of perspectives in this space of digital services. Regulation which is often cited as a necessary evil for the advancement of blockchain and digital assets, can take a painfully long time to implement. We hear the Maltese experience from Dave Police. So ZBX basically started about two and a half years ago. And most exchanges around the world offer pretty much the same product. You can go exchange your crypto. Some of them offer a bit of fiat. Some of them offer some, some really slight changes to their product. And having a team that was very experienced in financial products, we thought to ourselves that it is time to elevate the level. And remember, this was still back in 2017-18. To elevate the level up to a financial standard. Why should people not expect the same amount of regulation, the same amount of protection that they get from the financial industry? So we decided to do that BX. We got a dream team coming from financial industry, coming from the corporate service provision, from the tech industry, and obviously from the crypto. 
And we decided to go the full route in Malta, which is not cutting corners and going for the VFA exchange license. Retrospect, after two and a half years, was it worth it? I would say it was more painful than it, uh, we ever anticipated because the stringent rules probably are a bit limiting in the way they were structured. It's a bit of a chicken and egg. Normally, you would want to have business before you go into regulation. So then you regulate your business after you start to make some money. We did it the other way around, the painful way. It's not cheap to get the license here, but I believe when the European Commission, so at the European level, will regulate, which obviously now, as of very recent, we heard that the EC will regulate, it will look more like Malta's license or Malta's regulatory framework than, say, Estonia, where we can get a license for very limited money, which actually we have as well. So I think the Malta experience is one that is well worth it, but you have to really pay the price to be on top of your game. But whatever you do, don't regulate to the point of scaring away the community. In an excerpt from what was a truly explosive bonus round from the Canada show, Don Tapscott outlines how the Canadian government has, so far, got the balance of regulation all kinds of wrong. Since we wrote Blockchain Revolution in 2016, pretty much everything that we discussed is playing out real time. After the book was published, we created the Blockchain Research Institute, and we held a roundtable on the regulatory environment in Canada. And we also held a, another roundtable for government, business, academic leaders, talking about how Canada could respond to this opportunity of blockchain. And as you know, we don't think this is some interesting new technology. We think it's the operating system for the second era of the digital age. For 40 years, we've had a first era, mainframes, minis, PCs, the internet, the cloud, the web, big data, the mobile web, social media, and so on. And now we have technology extending itself into billions and trillions of inert objects that are becoming smart communicating devices that will do transactions. We have technologies that learn to do things they weren't programmed to do, AI, machine learning. And to us, the foundation is in fact blockchain. And what it represents is the second era of the internet. For those four years, we've had an internet of information. But when I send you some information, I'm actually sending you a copy. That doesn't work well for assets, things of value like money, securities, intellectual property, contracts, deeds, the data in our identities, cultural assets like art and music or a vote. Copying those is not a good idea. <laughs> you don't want someone copying your vote or your identity. And if I send you $1,000, it's important I don't still have the money. Cryptographers have called this the, the double spend problem for decades. And the way that we manage this problem is for intermediaries. These intermediaries are in big trouble these days. In 2008, Satoshi solved the double spend problem. And now for the first time in human history, people can trust each other, they can transact, they can do business peer to peer. And trust is not achieved by an intermediary, it's achieved by cryptography, collaboration, and some clever code. If this is true, the blockchain represents the second era of the internet, 
and the foundation of the second era of the digital age, then Canada getting on top of this is absolutely critical. And when it comes to Canada, there's been good news and bad news. I was talking to a journalist the other day about the challenges in Canada understanding this. And I, I asked him, what's the most valuable business that's ever been created in Canada? And he guessed, well, I don't know, was it RIM, BlackBerry, or Nortel? Maybe it was Shopify. Ethereum is worth four times the value of Shopify. It's worth more than the three largest Canadian banks combined. And this was created by Vitalik, a 19-year-old dropout from the University of Waterloo. And that was evidence of the great things that are happening in this country. We have the world's largest think tank, Blockchain Research Institute, that's based here. There's a vibrant ecosystem in cities all across Canada. But on the other hand, the regulatory environment prevents all kinds of good things from happening. We drove Ethereum out of this country. It could have been based here with a different regulatory environment. The most successful business in Canadian history in the research that we've done, this is the number one impediment to this whole thing going forward. Our government leaders, and to a certain extent, business leaders just don't get this. In my mind, blockchain and everything that's being built on top of it, including the digitization of all assets, it's the biggest digitization that's ever occurred in, in history, this dwarfs these other technologies, but we don't get it as a country. So you think about something like DeFi, Canada's got some great banks, although they have their growing problems. Well, FinTech is, is just the tip of the iceberg. DeFi represents the replacing of everything that banks do with software. Now that's not gonna happen, of course, because smart banks are trying to figure this out and figure out how to re-intermediate, how to create new value in the middle. But with DeFi, it poses an interesting dilemma for Canada. With the existing financial institutions come all kinds of computer systems and cultures, and on top of them, a regulatory environment and a set of regulators and a set of laws and a set of government institutions that overall in this country are pretty oblivious to what all of this represents. So we said this years ago, and it hasn't changed fundamentally. The attitude among senior government leaders in our most important federal departments, and also provincially, is pretty oblivious to this fundamental transformation that's happening. The implications for Canada are profound. The first era of the digital age was based in Silicon Valley. Where's the second era going to be based? It won't just be one location. I'm not sure it's going to be Silicon Valley. You've got a massive ecosystem in Zoog, thousands and thousands of people. And that's just one of many in the world that are underway. I mean, the government of China, notwithstanding its retrogressive attitude towards all kinds of things, including privacy, is putting billions of dollars into five or six big centers in China, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Beijing, 
Hangzhou, Guangzhou. And when I was last in China before the pandemic, I was introduced by the vice chairman of the Chinese Communist Party who read greetings from President Xi. And he said that there were two technologies for the next decades in China, AI and blockchain. So overall, the picture in Canada, well, it's not so bright, you got to wear shades. But if we can crack this complete lack of knowledge in, part, in, in terms of government leaders, and we're working very hard to do that at the Blockchain Research Institute, then I think that there's no reason why Canada can't be a true global leader. Now to Singapore, where we hear from Ming Ng about how blockchain accelerators, whether they be private or government sponsored, can be a powerful, well, accelerator for the blockchain community. Sutripe started back in 2018 after the cryptocurrency crash. And the big problem that we saw was that startups were being shunned away because they were using the word blockchain with or without cryptocurrencies being in their business model. A lot of them were facing bank account issues, regulatory issues that were coming up. People were afraid that, oh, is this something safe for me to do in Singapore, to use blockchain or to incorporate some form of token elements? We wanted to really bridge the gap between corporates to tell them that, hey, blockchain is just like any other technology, right? It's just like AI. It's just like machine learning. Let's focus more on the technology than anything that is spec. It was definitely a tricky business to start off with through the last two years. I mean, thankful to the support of the government agencies that have heard that there needs to be support for startups. Some of them have already been in the market since 2013 to really help them and show that Singapore can be a blockchain hub as well. We have like three different business verticals under Tribe. So the first is what people commonly know us for. So it's an accelerator. So Tribe Accelerator is the first government supported blockchain accelerator in Singapore, funded by this government agency called Enterprise Singapore under the Trade and Industry Ministry, where we work with like leading corporates to really help startup gain access to business opportunities or commercial partnerships, as well as funding from venture capital. We've helped the startups facilitate an extra uh, 70 US million over the last two years itself. And the other vertical that was launched in 20, late 2019 was our academy, where we really want to help grow the amount of developers within the blockchain ecosystem. We've been speaking with the layer ones, different protocols, even companies using blockchain as a solution. And the big issue is how, how do we get sufficient developers in order to take us to scale? And this also came out when some of our startups, they were doing really well, getting good commercial partnerships with our corporate partners. And the next step on scalability is like, oh, I, I really need more developers. Can you help me find them? So, so we started the academy. And last part is Open Notes. Open Notes is a neutral platform that we set out to create. It's sort of like a mini think tank where we bring corporates, governments to come together to discuss about the role of blockchain in their industry. Maybe the guys like Nestle, Procter & Gamble to talk about blockchain in the agri-food industry or like BMW or Daimler talking about blockchain in the mobility industry. And the role of open notes and the work that we do at Tribe all surrounds the idea of neutrality because we believe that blockchain requires a level of cooperation, sometimes between friends, competitors, or even frenemies. 
only through having this neutral platform will corporates be able to come together to talk about how to better facilitate transactions within this industry or certain form of partnership that requires the use of blockchain technology. Tribe has always been wanting to facilitate other parties similar to what we do in other markets itself. The work we do has been well received by the Dutch government when they came to visit us during the Singapore FinTech Fest. And we managed to strike a partnership to explore how do we nurture cross-border use cases between Singapore and Netherlands. And one example is between the port of Singapore and the port of Rotterdam. How do you use blockchain for tracking of trade and tracking of shipping routes? Other markets that we also generally work with partners includes like Latin America, Middle East, of course, discussing with the government agencies like Dubai International Finance Center or Abu Dhabi Global Markets. And this allows us to grow, I mean, the global ecosystem. So today we have partners in more than 32 different cities to facilitate helping our startups launch in different markets. Or similarly, when their startups come into Singapore, we help them gain access to the Southeast Asian ecosystem. Good news for some, enterprise blockchains are not dead. And for the time being, they're the de facto model for scaling the technology in Japan. We hear more on this from Norbert Gerke. Late yesterday, maybe in Japan, there was this news coming out that there's a the digital currency forum, which is kind of managed by the current, which is one of the exchanges. They've come out with a white paper on a, on a private Japanese yen stablecoin. And that is a consortium of somewhere 80 parties. Just from the headline, you talked about being open and allowing innovation to happen. I, I would also say being competitive. If you look at what's going on around the world in different places in terms of DeFi protocols or even new blockchain protocols that maybe also have been developed for a number of years, uh, but getting now really traction, still think of, of Algorand, Avalanche, and the two of us talked about Mino a bit as well. There's, there's lots of interest in, in that recently. All the DeFi protocols, and it's, it's like it's impossible as a single person trying to keep current to actually wrap the arms around it and be confident you have a good grasp of what's happening. So when I saw this paper and I saw the headline say like 80 parties to it, and it includes the three major Japanese banks, it includes the two major telecom companies, and includes JR. And you think like, yeah, this is like Japan Inc. getting their act together, right? Which is a great thing in the first place because it, they tend to move, let's say deliberately to, to give it a positive spin. But wouldn't it be nice right, on, on the outset when you talk about digital currencies or even payments, leave, leave digital currencies out. But even like if you talk about payments independent of the, the medium, right? you would see a competition of traditional banks, digital banks, telecoms companies, right? And clearly in Japan, JR has the most popular prepaid card, Suica. You would see competition across all of these. And when you see a headline that says, we've got this consortium of 80, that's a cartel. It's not a consortium, right? That's a cartel. 
It takes out competition, which I think is a shame because it avoids creativity and, and probably we're missing out on a number of solutions that are out there. Now, the argument is that we're agreeing on a base layer that makes everything interoperable, which is a good argument. And then on top of that, you have a business layer, and that's where then the programmable money sits. It's essentially at the, at the business layer with the programmable money where the competition then is supposed to be. But still, I think it would be much nicer for the consumer if you saw an NTT going against, right, an MUFG and say, like, we actually have the better money. Use NTT money, not the MUFG coin. It will be bank account-based, Right, we have a we have a history with open banking here in Japan, which is like similar to crypto, early adopter, right? I would say leading the world because of course the UK and and Europe were very early, but Japan wasn't far behind. But then the implementation was completely botched. So if you had a good open banking implementation, right, where you can get PRSPs, ARSPs uh, functioning properly then you'd be already 80% of the way of kind of these digital currency model. The remaining 20% being the programmability, which arguably could do with apps on, on top of open banking as well. So I'm, I'm not sure this is like, right, everybody gets excited because obviously Japan is the third largest economy in the world. There's a big consortium that comes out and says like, we're doing a digital yen. I don't think it's that earth shattering as some people wish it to be. And finally, in an industry that represents the crossroads of finance and IT, the state of diversity and inclusion are far from where most of us would like them to be. But in certain countries and certain communities, we can take pride that our friends and colleagues from all different backgrounds and walks of life have found a home in the blockchain community. We hear the UAE story from Akshata Namjoshi. In fact, UAE would probably be one of those countries which actually it has diversity in its foundation itself. Roughly 85% of the population is expatriate, which means that you will probably find citizens from each and every part of the world. In terms of diversity, in fact, we are a female-led organization. We were a majority female organization for the longest time. To be honest, I haven't really come across any kind of prejudice so far, and I consider myself lucky. The community has been so diverse that I would say that there is not much room for prejudice. You know, everyone is here to do a lot of good, add a lot of good commercial value, do good business, bring in the maximum amount of value that they can to the region and to themselves. So that way, I think it's very clear and it's, it's very commercial in that nature, if I may put it that way. Thanks again for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. As always, opinions in this episode are mine and those of my guests alone. If you want to find out more, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out some of the other episodes on the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast and check out the YouTube channel also called Blockchain Won't Save the World. Stay safe out there.